You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be hearing from the winner of the BMJ Group's Lifetime Achievement Award. You go back to 1970 when I came to Oxford about 40 years ago, then one in three people would die before they're 70, now it's one in six. And how cessation of antibiotic prophylaxis for endocarditis has affected outcomes. A significant proportion of patients who develop infective endocarditis, probably around 40 to 45 percent, um, actually grow bacteria that uh, have derived from the mouth um, when the damaged heart valves are, are looked at. Wednesday night saw the annual BMJ Group Awards. With these awards, we aim to recognise some of the outstanding achievements of a range of people, from junior doctors to the bastions of medical establishment. The list of awards, photos of the evening and soon interviews with the winners are all available on groupawards.bmj.com. One of the highlights of the evening for me was talking to Richard Pito, who won the Lifetime Achievement Award. Richard's work has spanned six decades and he now co-directs the Clinical Trials Services Unit and the Epidemiological Services Unit at the University of Oxford. His early career saw him, along with Richard Doll, showing the devastating effects of smoking. He also helped develop meta-analysis, that powerful technique which now informs so many of the clinical decisions that doctors make. After collecting his award, he talked to BMJ Features Editor Rebecca Coombs, and this is a snippet of that interview. This is really not just a Lifetime Achievement Award, it's a transgenerational one. It's for studies that started when I was about eight years old, studying the causes of chronic disease back in 1950, continued throughout the 20th century, and are now being carried forward by people working with me who are doing prospective studies like UK Biobank, China Biobank, that are going to run on into the 2010s, 2020s. And in the process, we found out lots about the avoidable causes of chronic disease, particularly smoking, blood pressure, blood cholesterol. We found out lots about what treatments work, and we're going to keep on doing this. If you go back to 1970, when I came to Oxford about 40 years ago, then one in three people would die before they're 70. Now it's one in six. The death rates in Britain are halved. Worldwide, the death rates of children are halved. It was 14% dying before five, now it's 7%. Overall, things are getting better but we've just got to keep taking the big causes seriously. There's only four big things in the world that have really got a lot worse in any big populations over the last 20 years or so. HIV, alcohol, places like Russia, tobacco in various countries, and obesity. But other than that, overall, the main causes of premature death are going down. The various infectious diseases are going down environmental hazards are going down we're just actually we're living longer we're much less likely to get disabled or dead before we're old you've had a long career as you've mentioned you must have um, had some quite big inspirations during your career and you came to care to name any of them and, and, and the importance of having mentors well I stumbled by accident into working with Richard Dole back in the 1960s and then he brought me to Oxford in the late 60s when he kept, went there as Regis Professor and we collaborated together on studies of smoking and various other things, first in Britain and then worldwide and we helped get smoking taken appropriately seriously. People knew the hazards 
but they weren't thinking about the relative importance of smoking other things. I mean, back, back in 1970, the cancer rate, the death rate from cancer men would have had in this country was being increased by 150% by smoking. It was two and a half times what it should have been. And that's decreased enormously over the last 40 years because so many people have stopped smoking. And I'd like to see decreases like that in a lot of other countries. Smoking is still much the biggest cause of premature death in this country. And the good news is it used to be four times bigger. And are you optimistic that we might see similar dips in, in other countries such as Russia and China in the long term? Russia, China and India are all different. The Russian government has recently started to take alcohol and tobacco seriously, very, very recently, and we'll see if that sticks. They've got colossal death rates from alcohol and tobacco, and they've just decided to try and take them seriously. Gorbachev did, did it for about three years and then stumbled and fell. Putin and Medvedev have just started to do this. We'll see. China is still deciding. There's a really good health minister who wants to take these things seriously. There's different interests in the Chinese government, and we'll see how it settles down. India, there's no sign of change. Indians aren't taking these things seriously. India has a million deaths a year from the back. It has 100,000 deaths from alcohol. They're not taking either of them seriously. So I think the answers are very different for different countries. But anyway, certainly, say, Britain, France, America, these show that big, big reductions in tobacco deaths are possible. Okay. Well, look, congratulations. It's uh, truly an achievement. And, uh, well, that's all right. I just I got here by studying the bleeding obvious. That's it. Enjoy your evening. I hope you're okay. ready anyway. Now, in the March of 2008, NICE, the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence, recommended that the practice of using antibiotics before dental surgery to prevent endocarditis be stopped. Harriet Vickers talks to the author of a paper published this week in the BMJ about his research into the effects of that change. For more than 50 years, antibiotics such as amoxicillin and clindamycin have been prescribed before dental surgery in the belief that they prevent endocarditis. However, that changed in 2008 when NICE recommended it stop. What effect has this had on rates of the infection since? I spoke to Professor Martin Thornhill from the University of Sheffield School of Clinical Dentistry, who's one of a group who've investigated this, and I started by asking why the practice had become so standard, when there was little or no firm evidence for its effectiveness. The, the problem's been going on for a long time, and what we do know is that a significant proportion of patients who develop infective endocarditis probably around 40 to 45%, um, actually grow bacteria that uh, have derived from the mouth um, when the damaged heart valves are, are looked at. So we know that it's certainly in a significant proportion of cases oral bacteria play a role in infective endocarditis. Now, precisely how those bacteria get there has not been certain, but an obvious sort of speculation was that they got into the circulation during invasive dental procedures such as extractions or anything that involved blood as part of a dental procedure. And you looked at the, the 12 months of prescription data to price the guidelines and then the most recent 12 months of prescribing, so uh, 14 to 25 months after the recommendations. What, what did you find in terms of prescription trends? The prescribing of antibiotic prophylaxis actually in several years prior to the introduction of the guidelines has been quite constant and um, 
we found that following the introduction of the NICE guidelines, there was a very significant fall in antibiotic prescribing. It actually went down from around about uh, nearly 11,000 prescriptions a month to around about 2,300 prescriptions a month. The, the fall was actually 78.6%. And prior to the uh, introduction of the guidelines, approximately 92% of all those prescriptions were being issued by dentists. When you looked at the, the infective endocarditis infections and, and death, how did those relate to the prescription trends? Well, we, we were able to look at the number of cases of infective endocarditis on a month-by-month basis for the same period that we looked at prescribing. So in other words, prior to the introduction of the NICE guidelines and then for two years following the introduction of the guidelines. And despite the fact that there had been a you know, 78.6% reduction in prescribing, we didn't see a significant increase in the incidence of infective endocarditis. Uh, statistically, it's quite a difficult thing to look at this because normally what you're trying to do is look for a change and in this case we were trying to establish that there had been no change but what we were able to do was to establish that if there had been any increase it would have been less than a 9.3% increase. Interestingly, however, the number of cases of infective endocarditis has been steadily rising for Mm. a number of years but there was no upwards sort of shift in that as a result of the introduction of the NICE guidelines. Infective endocarditis is fairly rare and um, also in the paper you lay out the the differing views on how much of it's actually caused by dental procedures. Um, Given these, how sure can you be of your conclusions? The problem with infective endocarditis, although it's comparatively rare, it's much more common in the group of patients who are at risk of developing it. And the guidelines over the years, the, the, the way in which they've really changed is the way in which they've identified the patients that were thought to be at risk. So prior to March 2008, we were giving antibiotic prophylaxis to those um, with a number of pre-existing conditions. So patients with a history of rheumatic fever, uh, heart valve murmurs, as well as patients who'd got prosthetic heart valves or congenital heart defects. After the NICE guidelines, we stopped giving antibiotic prophylaxis to all of those patients. Mm. Now, interestingly, um, the U- UK is fairly unique in that, and most other parts of the world, uh, including North America through the American Heart Association guidelines and, and Europe through the European Society of Cardiology guidelines, they recommended that we stop giving it to patients with native valve disease but should continue to give it to patients with prosthetic heart valves and and certain congenital anomalies or Mm. previous history of endocarditis. The one difficulty we do have with the results of this study uh, is that um, the prescribing of antibiotics after the NICE guidelines didn't drop to zero. Um, There was still about 20% of the previous prescribing continued. What we can't do, unfortunately, is exclude the possibility that that prescribing was being specifically targeted at patients who are regarded at high risk. We probably can conclude that it's unlikely to be a benefit 
to a substantial proportion of the patients we used to give it to, but we unfortunately are still in a position where we just don't have the answer for some specific target groups such as high-risk patients with prosthetic heart valves and so on. Mm. Is Is that something that you'd like to see looked at now? Well, it, it's clearly an ongoing question, and it's it's something that's of uh, fairly major significance. Uh, as you pointed out, we really don't have any good quality data about this whole issue. So the problem is kind of clouded by uncertainty. And cardiologists, in particular, you know, I think because they see the the horrendous outcomes for infective endocarditis. Mm. You know, about 20% of patients die within the first week or two. Mm. Um, you know, they they very much want to do anything to prevent that, and so they're still very keenly in favour of giving antibiotic prophylaxis, and yet the guidelines now, of course, recommend you don't. And I think now really the only way to draw a conclusion to this would actually be to carry out a clinical trial where patients in the high-risk group were um, randomised to receive either a placebo or antibiotic cover prior to invasive dental procedures. Do you think that will happen? Are there any plans to do that? I mean, one thing that springs to mind for me is that there might be ethical issues with with doing that kind of trial. That has been a major barrier, certainly in the past. There are a number of issues. First of all, the number of patients that would be needed for a trial like that because of the relative rarity of infective endocarditis But the other big issue is the kind of ethical and medico-legal issue, particularly in countries where um, giving antibiotic prophylaxis is still the standard of care. But in the United Kingdom, because of the NICE guidelines, it possibly means that the UK would be the best-placed country to actually carry out such a study. Mm. Great. Well, thanks very much for, for coming on and telling us more about your research. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more stories from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.